Season 4 Beyond the Plate is presented by Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. Martin's was founded in the heart of Pennsylvania Dutch country in 1955, and they are the number one branded hamburger bun in America. As I like to say, they can make almost any burger taste better. Trust me. This past week was the Food Network and Cooking Channel New York City Wine and Food Festival Burger Bash, which Rachel Ray hosted, and I had the fortunate opportunity to walk around with her and take a bite out of over 20 burgers. Many of those use Martin's product, and I'll tell you, incredible. We're actually going to do a bonus episode coming soon. Stay tuned, probably towards the end of October. But here's what I love about Martin's. They believe in giving back to their community. They support hundreds of charitable organizations such as food banks, after-school programs, disaster relief, and others. So to learn more about Martins, visit their website at potatoes.com or follow them on social media for delicious photos and recipes at Potato Rolls. Martins, we thank you. I think part of being a very good chef is that, like, you're cooking for people. And, like, if they're not, like, at the end of the day, if people are not happy and like you know super excited about their experience then like how could you say you're a good chef so like I think I've always had a certain level of talent I mean I don't think I've ever been the most talented person but yeah I just think that I I was getting nominated for things and like when I look back at it I was like what was I doing that was particularly special that should have gotten me nominated for anything and like when I think about it, it was nothing you know Welcome to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey with food and their passion for giving back. I'm Cappy, and in this week's episode, we sat with Chef Dan Juusti. Big shout out to the team at WeWork, first and foremost, on Irving in New York City. Thank you for uh, allowing us to use your space there. We appreciate it. I have a lot to say about Dan Juusti, but I'm going to kind of keep it short because this episode is great. Dan comes from a Jersey Italian family. If you don't believe me, follow him on social media and check him out singing in Italian. It's quite entertaining. Dan worked in Washington, D.C. at some of the best restaurants. He then moved to Copenhagen. He was the head chef of Noma under Rene Redzepi for three years. You've probably heard of this restaurant. It's been the number one restaurant in the world a few times. We actually got some firsthand information about Dan from Rene Redzepi for this episode, so that was pretty exciting. Dan could have done anything from there. He could have gone to, honestly, any restaurant in the world to cook. He actually left to work on school food. So that's the gist of this episode. You may have seen him on CBS Sunday Morning. They did a big feature on him. This guy has high standards. Imagine coming from one of the best restaurants in the world. He demands a lot from his school food chefs, his staff. Probably more than you may see in most restaurants, to be honest. So mark my words, if someone is going to make being a chef in a school cool and meaningful, it's Dan. Sidebar, check out Dan's PB&J post on his Instagram as well. Last but not least, social impact. Dan has an organization called Brigade. It is not a nonprofit. He'll explain it during this episode, but it is the essence of social impact. The effect his organization's actions are having on the well-being of a community, in this case, kids in schools, it's incredible. So please enjoy this conversation as we go beyond the plate with Chef Dan Giusti. Thanks for sitting down, Dan. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. 
I guess we kind of met how a lot of people meet these days through the like social media world. Cause right. I remember like when you were first coming back from Copenhagen, there's an article about you and what you were about to do mm -hmm. or you had tweeted and I think I'd messaged you. And then like days after I messaged you, everyone's like, you need to get in touch with this guy. <laughs> so take us through quickly. What's like, what's a typical day in the life of Dan Juicy like? Yeah. Am I pronouncing it right? Yeah. Juicy. Okay, that good, was good. Good shot there. Yeah. Um, well, I think to be honest with you, it's, it's still very much in flux. Um, you know, we have this new business and we are working with different school districts. So I will say I do spend a lot of time driving back and forth, but my day can be anywhere from spending time in schools uh, and just literally being present, just watching kids eat. Um, I try not to get too involved in that. We do hire chefs to run schools and it's their job. And I, they're in charge and I want people to respect them and not care too much about me. So I just like to be there, be present, watch the operation, watch, watch the kids eat, understand if they're, you know, it's pretty easy to understand if kids like food or they don't like food. But aside from that, to be honest with you, I mean, I'm, I'm running a small company, so it's very small. I'm doing payroll. I'm answering emails. I mean, obviously what I want to be doing is to be as present as possible in schools, but there's a variety of other things that I'm not very proficient in, which I... <laughs> probably take me much longer to do than a lot of other people. So I'm doing a lot of those things as well. Yeah. All right. So we'll get into this business you were yeah. talking about. Let's start like early on though. Tell me about like 10 year old Dan. Yeah. 10 year old Dan. That's a, that's a long ways back. So when I was 10, I spent most of my time playing soccer. I was when I wanted to be a professional soccer player. That was the dream. But I will say that was actually around the time as well that I did start to get interested in cooking in that I grew up in a big Italian family in southern New Jersey, and then we moved away around that time from the majority of my extended family. And when we moved away from my extended family, uh, we weren't eating as well. My mother, will tell you herself, she does not like cooking. She's not really into it. She can cook, but I think it's one of those things. If you like to cook, you're good at cooking. If you don't like to cook, you're probably not great at it. She just doesn't like to cook. So when we moved away from my big Italian family in southern New Jersey, I started to long for some of these things that I used to eat a lot. And that's actually when I started to try to do some of it on my own. Even at that age, 10, 11, 12 is like when I would like sparingly just kind of like try to make tomato sauce. That was the beginning for me. That was actually a, an interesting age. I will say not to, you know, not to get down here, but my father passed away when I was nine. Okay. When he passed away, he liked to cook. He passed away. My mother wasn't super into cooking. And then I think a combination of those things made me kind of want to like figure this, get into that a bit, yeah. understand that a little more. Take us around the juicy family dinner table. Yeah. So when I think of the Juicy family dinner table, I think of a very specific table in a very specific place. This is at my, so I re, we refer to it as Zia Rosa. Zia is aunt in Italian. So she is my father's uh, older sister. And she's the one who kind of, I would say, I would attribute my desire to get into cooking to her. And even to this day, I have I'm continuously understanding how much she understands about food. Obviously, as a kid, I really liked her food. And I thought, the reason, you know, I, th I feel like every single family out there has that one relative that they want to go to their house totally on the holidays. And then there's a lot of relatives. You just like they have that off year that they pick up the holiday and you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> so true. You're just like, oh. <laughs> And when I was a kid, I just thought because I ate everything as a kid, I thought it was always about the food. 
because Zerosa is the best cook I know till this day. But it's funny now when I think about it, I look at my nieces and nephews who are like kind of picky eaters, but they still, they want to go to her house. And it's really about the hospitality. Like when you go there, she just like anything you need, anything you want, she just takes care of it. And she knows how to host. Like some people, as much as they want to host, they don't know how to host. Like, again, I keep knocking on my mom here, but like my mom's amazing. But her thing is not like cooking and hosting people. And now that I'm, I'm kind of around more because of my job, she'll invite people over for holidays, 30 people. She'd never do that and have me come oh, and cook. Of course. <laughs> but I said, well, I'll cook. You have to host everyone. And it's like hosting people to her is like this crazy thing. So anyway, Zio's house, her husband, Zio Ezio, is Zio's uncle, this extraordinary guy who's a tailor who works out of his house. She's 80. He's 90. My favorite people in the world. I think of sitting at their table, usually when you eat there most of the time. And back in the day when she was younger, it was a common thing to have 30 people like on a Sunday, whatever it may be. Now, when you go there, like I'll go there this weekend, there'll probably be, there could be 10 people there, 12 people there. Zio sits at the head of the table and then Zerosa sits to his left, which is the closest to the kitchen because she won't eat much during the meal. She'll just continuously get up and down to get, she won't let anybody else get it from the table to get anything. And then I sit to the right of Zio So I always have sat there uh, and I'm like under, complete scrutiny the whole time as to how much I'll eat, especially now that I'm a chef. It's like, if I don't eat a ton of food, it's like, there's a, there's a problem. So Zero sits right across from me. I swear to God, she doesn't eat anything. She just gets up and down and watches me eat. And then Zio watches me eat and continues to give me more food. And I just have to keep eating and eating and eating. And then everybody else at the table. And I usually stick and now I like really focus in, I'm just there. And it's always interesting to hear a conversation between the two of them because They'll actually talk about, like, she'll say, how is it in Italian? And he'll say, like, oh, it's good, or it's maybe a little lacking. And he's the only one who would ever say, like, it's not amazing. Everybody else is amazing. But at that table, and that consists of usually on just a normal meal, you would sit down, always have some kind of pasta. Quite often, if it's not a special occasion, it's pasta with tomato sauce made from tomatoes that she jars herself. Then, And that's like, maybe I'm eating two bowls of that at least. And if I don't eat two bowls, it's a problem. And then comes meat, vegetables, and salad. There's always a salad, just a green salad. There's always a meat, whether it's roasted pork shoulder, whether it's veal cutlets, whether it's salt and boca, there's always some kind of meat. And then there's a variety of vegetables, which now could be many different things, which he preserves a lot of her own things. So there could be cooked vegetables, there could be preserved vegetables. And then after that comes the sweets, then fruit, and then coffee. And that's like a normal like no matter what you sit down for, you get that. And then if it's some kind of special occasion, then they usually will have hors d'oeuvres before that. Amazing. Yeah. You look forward to that meal? Those meals? I look forward. I'm going there this weekend and it's like, it's the best. You, like for me, it's like home. Yeah. My family moved around a lot as kids. So like there's no house that I remember growing up in uh, except her house. Yeah. And going there and getting that meal. Like I can't, I can't cook if I want to when I go there. Like it's like just sit here. And it's the kind of place, too, that like when I go there, I sleep in. So I wake up at like 1030, eat breakfast and then eat lunch like an hour later. <laughs> you can eat like seven meals in yeah. like this short time. I love it. What was your first job you ever had? So when I, you know, I was into cooking, I went into high school and I, at this point I was living in northern Virginia and 
I was going to a high school that was very competitive. And I moved there when I was a sophomore in high school, actually, now that I think about it. And I had been, I, I knew I wanted to be a chef already at this point, even though I had really, you know, Food Network was just getting popular then. This was like 2000, 1999, 2000. So like, I didn't really know much about the industry. I just know I like to cook. And I met a Culinary Institute of America representative when I was a sophomore in high school. And she introduced me to a gentleman who was the corporate chef of a organization called Clyde's Restaurant Group, which is very prevalent in the Washington DC area. I think now they have like 13 restaurants, but it's like a local chain. But like one of the restaurants, the Old Ever Grill is the fifth or sixth highest grossing restaurant in the yeah. United States. So it was that chain. So Clyde's of Georgetown was my first job ever. I was 15. I started working there as a prep cook and I absolutely, I loved it. Like it was in its high volume. I mean, they're doing, there was the smallest of their restaurants, but they're doing a lot of covers. Um, and, and I worked my way up in high school to working the grill and like the grill station there on a Saturday brunch still, I think is one of those stations. I feel like cooks out there. And I was like, think about stations throughout their career. That was like the hardest thing they ever did. And I was like, by that time, I think I was like 16 or 17, but it was a grill. First of all, brunch at Clyde's of Georgetown. It's on M street in Georgetown. It's like rocking, like busy, busy. And brunch is always a very good mix of like, Clyde's is known for like their burgers of burgers and eggs Benedict. And that station did both. So you had a, you had a grill and it was a big grill. And on either side of the, on the right and the left side of the grill, you had two hotel pans, four inch deep hotel pans with water for poaching eggs. So you'd poach eggs, you'd have to toast English muffins for the eggs, you'd have to grill the Canadian bacon for the Eggs Benedict as well. You were also cooking burgers in the middle, and you were also toasting buns for the burgers, and you were doing burgers to temperature. It was just like super busy, busy. I remember like legitimately a place where like they had a ticket machine and the tickets would hit, like there were times the tickets actually hit the ground. Yeah. <laughs> would just be like, oh God. This was in high school, that's a pretty- so, and I, Yeah, it was in high school, and I was working 40 hours a week in high school. Jesus. And like, I didn't really need to, like, it wasn't like I, we weren't wealthy, but like, I, I, I didn't need to work 40 hours a week, but I wanted to, like, I kind of stopped doing everything else. Like I played soccer my whole life, very competitively stopped playing soccer really? and just worked. Like, I just liked it. Like it just, it's where I wanted to be. Wait, you said the high school was competitive. So the high school was super competitive. In what sense? Um, like People were like, sophomores in high school were like, I'm, I am going to school here. Got I am it. going to college here. So I was like, what am I going to do? And like, I had really no other passion outside of cooking. So I just decided I want to be a chef. And then I started figuring out like, what do I need to do? And I applied to one culinary school. That's all. I applied to one school. It was the Culinary Institute of America. I got in and that was it. Like I didn't, like, and I did very well in school. I think I had to go to culinary school for my mom to accept this as like, she was very supportive but I think also very worried. She's like, you're not just going to go like work after high school, like go to culinary school. You know, I'd argue now as an adult and after my experience that like, if you can find the right restaurant to go into and really learn, which is tough, don't get me wrong. I would say do that rather than go to culinary school. Okay. So you're working in a kitchen in high school. You go to CIA after mm -hmm. high school. Give us like a quick rundown of your cooking or food journey? Yeah. So basically, um, while I was at CIA, I did my internship at Oriole, Charlie Palmer's Oriole in New York City. That was like my first fine dining experience. And that's when things changed for me as well. Like going to CIA, all of a sudden cooking in a restaurant became about fine dining. Before then it wasn't, it was just about cooking in a restaurant. And like, I knew my family experience. Then when I got there, I was like, okay. And then I went to Oriole and I was like, I really like this like super intense environment. 
After culinary school, I went to Italy for uh, about a year. I worked in uh, one Michelin star restaurant in Northern Italy. A lot of that had to do with like me wanting to live in Italy because my father was born there and like learning the language. I also got to see a cuisine that was very different than what I was used to. So the restaurant I was working, we do like 10 covers a night, but it was primarily risotto instead of pasta. We did pasta, risotto was more important. One of the specialties of the area was donkey meat. So equine meat was a, was a big thing there. So we had a dish that was like ground donkey meat, stewed in red wine and served with like potato puree. Horse was around, horse salami, donkey, you know, these kind of things. So that was a very interesting food. We had a lot of frogs around, we had like risotto with frogs in it. A lot of, it was a very interesting thing. So I did that. Came back and worked for Clyde's Restaurant Group again. At this point, I'm like 21. I worked at the Old Everett Grill. So I was like, you know, working there, expediting a service where you would literally serve like 2,000 people. And then I moved from there to one of their other restaurants to open it. So I opened one of their restaurants that had 600 seats in Washington. And I was a sous chef. So I was like, at this time again, I was like 21. I was a sous chef. I was in charge of like 30 people. I wrote a schedule. But again, it was like super high volume. Uh, After that, I became a sous chef of their fine dining restaurant called 1789. That's part of the Clyde's restaurant group. Then I went to Las Vegas in 2008. So that's when all like the big, the Guy Savoie, Joel Robichon, these people opened restaurants in Las Vegas. So I went and worked for a year for Guy Savoie. And that was the first time I worked at like a really high level. So although this was in Vegas, you know, Guy Savoie was a three, is a three mission star restaurant in, in Paris. So opening in Vegas, like it was granite countertops, carpeted floors. I mean, we would vacuum the floors in the kitchen, just like a whole different level, something I'd never seen before. After that job, came back to Washington, became the head chef of 1789. By this time, I'm 24. So I'm like this 24-year-old kid, cocky, didn't like, by no means was I a good chef, but thought I knew a lot. And I was the head chef of this restaurant, 1789, in Washington that has been there forever. It's like this institution in Washington. All the presidents have eaten there. And I tried to change everything. I mean, they were known for rack of lamb, Caesar salad, creme brulee, these types of things. And I was trying to change everything, upset a lot of people, but spent like three years doing this. Really to the point where like as a person and a professional, like I grew a ton. And really by the, by the end of that time, realized like, what am I doing? Like this restaurant is successful for a reason. And that was my last job before I went to Noma. So it got to this point where I was like, I just want to like that job was very administrative. I was like managing a lot of people and I wasn't cooking anymore. And I was like, I had a PR team and I was getting a lot of press that I didn't deserve. I mean, this is like really how I understand how like a lot of this, the game works. Like I was getting all this press in Washington and I was like, and now when I look back at it, I'm like, I was not a good chef and like, I was not doing good stuff, but I was like nominated for like best chef in Washington and this and that getting national press. And it was like, well, why do you think that? Like, why, what do you mean you weren't a good chef? Were you a good chef, but you just hadn't reached no. the caliber that you had at no more? I just don't think I was a good chef. I mean, I, I was trying to do things I shouldn't have been doing in the setting that I was in. I was trying to like, I, I had an idea of what I wanted to do. And that was, it was a very confused period for me, I think, because like, did I want to be in like high, high end fine dining? But like, you know, I equate like, I think about this a lot now and it's funny because I never really thought of this before, but, um, I think, you know, there's two ways you can cook. You can either cook for yourself and that's what most chefs do, but that's what people pay for. They want to go eat so-and-so's cuisine, or you can genuinely cook for other people and really listen, like really listen to what they want. And for what it's worth, I think most fine dining, you know, you're cooking for yourself, 
But at 1789, I will say that kind of place, I mean, the people were eating in that restaurant. It was either a holiday, you were graduating from Georgetown University, it was on Georgetown University's campus, or you were like 90 years old. Like that's who was eating and, and old money wealthy. So it's the kind of place that like people who ate there wanted food that they were familiar with. They wanted it prepared exactly how they wanted it prepared. If it was hot food, they wanted it hot. If it was cold, they wanted it cold. They didn't want anything crazy fancy. And for me, I was really trying to do something that they didn't want. So I think I was trying to do all kinds of stuff. I was not. And I think part of being a very good chef is that like you're cooking for people. And like if they're not like at the end of the day, if people are not happy and like, you know, super excited about their experience, then like how could you say you're a good chef? So like I think I've always had a certain level of talent. I mean, I don't think I've ever been the most talented person. But yeah, I just think that I, I was getting nominated for things. And like when I look back at it, I was like, what was I doing that was particularly special that should have gotten me nominated for anything? And like when I think about it, it was nothing, you know. So Noma pops into the picture. Yeah. So I got to the point there where I, again, I, I matured a lot. And I learned, like I really realized what I was doing, that I was trying to change things that shouldn't be changed. And, you know, I started kind of leveling out and I think I started to find a groove there, but it got to the point where I was like, I was making good money, I was getting PR, but I wasn't happy. I was like, what am I doing? So I made a list of restaurants and I was like, I just, I want to go work at one of these restaurants. And it was I, on the list. So it was, li <laughs> so looking back at it, considering I'd never really worked anywhere and I was the chef of restaurants in Washington, nobody's ever heard of. It was in two or in a different countries. Very ambitious. It was just three restaurants. It was just, it was Noma, the Fat Duck and Alinea. That was it. Those are the three restaurants that I said to myself, I want to go work at one of these restaurants and I want to like work my way up. I was willing to go from the bottom and work my up. So I wrote to all three restaurants. Noma, actually I ended up finding out that I had a mutual connect, I had a connection at Noma where when I made this list, I found out that a guy I worked with at Oriole when I was 18 who worked next to me, he was 24, 25 at the time, was the head chef of Noma. This guy, Matt Orlando, he was American as well. Hadn't talked to him since I was 18, so it was like 10 years prior. Wrote to, found his contact, wrote to him, and then he wrote back to me and said, look, like working here, getting a visa as an American is gonna be almost impossible. You're more, you know, I'm more than happy to have you come here for a two week trial, and we can see, we can go from there. So I'm looking at this as like a proper, like this is a trial, this is a two week trial where I could get a job. So that gets lined up. Uh, Fat Duck never gets back to me. Alinea gets back to me. I spend two days at Alinea. It was cool. Just wasn't like my tea, you know, my cup of tea. I love Chicago. It was cool, but it just wasn't. And I was also, this was a week before I was going to Noma. So I was like, I'm going to go to Noma. And then after Noma, I'll see like what I want to do. What? The shit that goes through my head right now is crazy because like hypothetically speaking, like what if you went to Alinea and then like, you took a job that Dave Barron like would have had or like you opened next and Dave never did next. But you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it would have been crazy because when I look at Alinea too, like the guy, like the people who were there when I did my trial, like Mike Bagala was there as a sous chef. Then he became the executive chef. The guy Simon, who's now the executive chef, was there as like, I think he was just a chef de partie when I did my like little two week, two day trial. So yeah, you never know. It's so crazy. It's kind of wild. Yeah. Um, but, you know, backtracking a little bit, when I found out I was going to have this two-week thing, this trial at Noma, again, it wasn't like super clearly told to me that this was a real tryout. I took it as that because I was told like, come for two weeks and like, we'll see. So I, I, I needed to get a visa if I was going to have a job there. And the off chance I got a job, I would need to get a visa. So like, I started taking Danish lessons 
on Berlitz every single day, which is super expensive. Um, because I, one way to get a visa would be taking an immigra- straight up immigration test, which you needed to pass a language test. Then I started going down this wormhole of getting my Italian visa, my Italian citizenship. Cause so my father was born in Italy, but because he was naturalized before I was born to get the visa, I needed to go through my mother's grandfather. So basically to get it, you need to track the birth and death of all these people and you need to have the act. So I'm getting like birth certificates from like Sicily from 1870. Long story short, never got, never got it. Anyway, we get to the point where it's time to go to Noma. I go to Noma for two weeks. I'm like blown away. I think a big part of it for me, as you can see from that list, as much as I was very interested in the aesthetics of these different foods and seeing new ingredients, the prospect and the idea of working in one of these kitchens at such a high level, particularly like Noma was the best restaurant in the world at the time. And like, for me, it was like, what does that mean? How are the people in this place? How do they act? How do they you know, carry themselves? And then I went there and I was like just blown away. Like I saw so many ingredients I'd never seen before. There were so many people from all over the world. There were so many people in general working in the kitchen. The sense of urgency there was something I'd never, I mean, people were like running around and just like the, the, the pressure and the expectations on everyone were so high that that was like what I was looking for. That's what I wanted. I wanted to be a part of that. So I was there for two weeks and I'm like, this is amazing. But then the two weeks were up and surely enough, no one said anything to me. <laughs> it was like this, you know, this job tryout in two weeks are up and I like go back to DC and I was like, yep. So like I wrote to Matt Orlando and I was like, you know, I was there for the two weeks and he's like, yeah, you know, there's really not any jobs available. And, and I was like, ah, like it was kind of like for what it's worth, I guess in my head, I kind of really made it seem like it was a job tryout when maybe it really wasn't. And I was bummed, but I, I loved it. And I said, if I can get a visa on my own, so they wouldn't sponsor me. If I get a visa on my own and I work for free, um, can I come back? And he was like, sure. You know, if you want to do that, do it. So I had a girlfriend at the time, a dog, which I still have, uh, a car, an apartment, a life. And I was just like, put my notice in at my restaurant in 1789 where I was the chef. Left, moved to Copenhagen without a paying job. My girlfriend quit her job, moved to Copenhagen, oh, took shit. the dog with us. But nothing was guaranteed. How long was, from the time you got back from the trial until you went went back, like picked up your life and went? How long passed between that time? Basically like a month and a half. Um, I guess I did that trial in July and my, I ended up in Copenhagen like in September, like mid-September. Got it. So it was fast. I basically put my notice in immediately. And I, it was like a you know month and a half, two month notice, something like this. And so we started really then digging deep on this visa situation, but it was like this thing that like I generally, like I'm a pretty conservative person. I follow the rules. I tend to be very organized and very prepared, but when it's come to my career, like I it's just like sometimes certain things feel right. And this, it was like this idea that even if we move there and we can only stay there for a couple months, that was the right thing to do. It just made sense. So we go there. My girlfriend at the time was this Finnish citizen who found out that because she was a Finnish citizen and like she had never lived, like her mother was Finnish, so she had a Finnish passport, but by rules of cohabitation, because we had lived together and we could prove it for more than 18 months, I could share the same rights as her as a European citizen. So literally within two days of being in Copenhagen, I got a five-year visa. Simultaneously, Matt Orlando contacted me because he knew I was coming. And he's like, How's, you know, have you figured out this visa situation? And I'm like, yeah, I think we probably did. Uh, we still hadn't, we, we were just getting there. We still hadn't really figured it out completely, but we were pretty sure it would work. And he's like, someone just left. 
with Chef Departee who just left. And that was like very rare. Um, and there was like this falling out and this guy literally just picked up and left one day and he's like, we have a job opening as a chef de partie. And if you have a visa, you're good to go. So literally within a week of being there, I had a job as a chef de partie at Noma. It was like, just completely fell into place. Wow. It just happened. So it was like, took a huge chance, all came together. Sorry to stop you here. No. Can you explain for someone who doesn't know the system, what a chef de partie is? Yeah, exactly. That's the top. So essentially... In most places where we would refer to a cook in a kitchen in the United States, which is someone that has limited responsibility and is primarily cooking the food, is referred to as a chef de partie in in a restaurant in Europe. Now, I will say that at Noma, or in a restaurant of that size, operation for for what it's worth, you know, a restaurant like Noma was feeding 45 people at a time, but there were about... uh, 35 paid people working there, six or seven of which were sous chefs. Then there was a head chef and then there was Renee. And under the sous chefs were these chef de partie, which in most places that would be kind of like the lowest paid level. At Noma, there was about another 20 to 25 people working there voluntarily. So even as a chef de partie, you were a cook, but you were actually overseeing all these interns as well. So you did have, you did have some responsibility as where in the United States, Quite often you meet a lot of cooks in you know, restaurants. They're like 24, 25. They're on the younger side. Like when I left Noma, there was a lot of chefs de parties there that were like 30, 29, 28. Um, so it depends where you go, but essentially as a cook. So it was like the lowest, the lower level of, of paid employee yeah. that I got a job there. That's crazy. Okay, so you were at Noma for a while. You're what feels like a perfectionist. It's not, at any point, did you ever like want to throw in the towel? Oh yeah. Very quickly actually. Really? Yeah. So after about seven and a half to eight months that I was there, I was just getting like, I felt like I was just getting dominated. Like I was in this very administrative job in a restaurant in Washington that like for what it's worth was not, you know, it wasn't like in the, the mix of any real competition. So like you're there with all these young guns who've been like traveling the world cooking and there's like running and, and for what it's worth when I was there, I was like, 27, 28 when I started there, like obviously that's not old, but a lot of the people are on the younger side and like just like physically too, the first few months, I was just getting like beat up. You know, you're working like eight, 17, 18 hours a day. Expectations are high. So after seven, eight months already, and two, my girlfriend had quit her job in DC and actually started working for the same company, but remotely from Copenhagen. So she wasn't like meeting anyone out and about. So she was like not happy, but I was like, I don't like, I don't know if it's going to work. So I went and talked to Matt Orlando and I sat down with him and I, and I told him this, I told him, I, you know, my girlfriend's not happy. I don't really feel like I'm doing great here. I don't know like what's, what's in the future for me here. And th- that's when he told me that I was going to be the next head chef. After like eight months, he had said that they were going to wait to tell me this. But like in a place like that, they start planning pretty far out. And like he knew he was going to be leaving within like a year, a year and a half to open his own restaurant, which is a mass in Copenhagen. And they already, you know, they started talking about this, like who's going to take his place. And they, him and Renee had chosen me and they weren't going to tell me, but obviously at that point it was the time to say it. And he told me, so I was like, yeah, you know, of course. And basically from that point on until he left, they like groomed me to become the next head chef. So like at one point they made me a sous chef and then, you know, I was the head chef. Like a a year later. So I think, yeah, like after about like close, it was like a year and like, seven, eight months, a year and six, seven months, almost a year and a half that I I was there before I became a chef. Jesus. So I heard you say you're a review reader when you were there. Oh, (laughs) if you could go back in time and have that position again as head chef, 
do you think you'd still read all the reviews? hundred percent. I mean, really? I think, you know, a place like Noma has so many people working there that they have the luxury of having people focus on certain things. And what I mean by that is like we had a test kitchen and we had a few people working in the test kitchen at the time. It was Lars Williams, Thomas Friebel and Rocio Sanchez from Chicago. Like I would probably say, I mean, maybe the three most talented people I've ever met in my life. I mean, I would say they are period. So like I, I wasn't bringing, I wasn't, you know, it wasn't for what it's worth. Like I was the head chef and the head chef position, the way I saw it, because I interpret, like that was the cool part about Noma. Like I kind of interpreted it a certain way. And I think, but that was also, and it always has been one of my strengths to see like, there's all these people here doing all these different jobs. What is, what should I do to be of most use? And outside of generally keeping things organized and making sure people are communicating, you know, you had Renee, you had the test kitchen, you had the service kitchen, there was private parties, there was the prep kitchen, there was the interns, there were 20 people, you had a, you know, a full-time forager that was going out with people every day. We had a guy who purchased all our food. I mean, a lot of people. For one small restaurant, a lot of people. So outside of keeping things organized, I really put a lot of, and, and essentially upholding the standard. So it was like, test kitchen would produce this meal. We need to serve it. How do we serve it? And sometimes it was like trying to figure out the best way to do it. But we also had sous chefs who worked in the service kitchen who like, that was their entire focus. For me, I put so much focus on the guests and whether they were in the restaurant or after the restaurant when they were eating. So like I got obsessed with knowing who every single person was. And that came from Renee. I mean, Renee, when I first started, I'd be expediting and Renee would be like upstairs and he'd see on Instagram that like someone would, t they were eating at Noma. They like tagged, they like, and he's like, who is this? He'd just come downstairs and just say, who is that? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know who that is. Like we, you know, like, like in many restaurants do now at a high level, we would Google all the names on the reservations, but that wasn't good enough. So like if it was a table of six people and you knew who the name was under, great. So you might know who that person was, but who are the other five people? And they don't speak English. They're, you know, they're speaking Italian. So like, how do you find, like, you need to find out who all of these people are. Find out and know who every single person is, what they do, why they're here. Are they happy? And the kitchen was open there. So when you expedited, it was glass. You could see everyone. It was 12 tables. You could see every single person eating. And like, so I would spend my time, I'd, I'd be searching hashtag while expediting, searching hashtag, hashtags on Instagram. The chef served a lot of the food there. So when a chef would go out to serve something, when they'd come back, like, how are they? How are they? Are they good? Do they need something? And you're always kind of trying to gauge, like, on any given point, I think like 30% of the people eating would be from Scandinavia. The rest would be international. She so might have a table of eight people from Japan who barely speak English, and we're serving them all this obscure food. So like, how are we really knowing if they're enjoying their meal? Okay, June, who usually is not going to be down here for the whole service, he speaks Japanese. June, you're going to be in service the whole time. You're going to serve every single dish and explain every single... Like, you did whatever it took. And on the contrary, like, I remember there were times where, like, we'd have, like, there'd be, you know, there were a lot of kids who would go there and study a semester abroad. So you have, like, the family from New Jersey and, like, the dad, like, doesn't want to be there. He just, and he's like, why are we here? The mom's excited. And, like, the, it's just, like, it's not a good... Like, you can tell that, like, that table is not buying into this whole Noma thing. Like they're not like, they're not like thrilled. But so then that would be a moment. Like I'd go out, like I'm from New Jersey, talk to the dad about the Philadelphia Eagles. Like, and then all of a sudden everyone's comfortable. And like, that was the magic of that place. And I really focused on making sure people were happy and that we knew 
every single person who ate there. And like, I would, I could tell you to this day, like there were people who ate there that like, I can tell you where they ate when they, when they were there. Like, this is where you sat. I remember when you ate, you sat here, you sat in this, this table in this position because it became such an obsession. So like reviews and constantly knowing what was like, I needed to know everything that was written about that restaurant because I felt it was my job that if Renee asked me, like if he read something that was negative, I could say, well, I, you know, cause the beauty of Noma as well is that when the restaurant's open, you're there, there's no shifts. So every single person who ate there in the time that I was there, I was there. You know, I didn't like, he forced me to take a couple of days off one time and they like forced me away. But other than that, like I was, I was there. Like if you ate at Noma between 2011 and September and this time I was there and I could tell you like if they weren't happy, because if someone wasn't happy, that really stuck out in your mind, you know? Is there, is there a review that sticks with you good or bad? Um, yeah, well, yeah, there was a, there was a written review that was actually published that was really bad and it ended up not being the end of the world because the guy wrote that he was a danish food critic and he just completely like slandered the whole place so it made it less bad but the reason for me it was bad is because we used to serve this thing we referred to as the nordic coconut and we had different versions of it it was one of the first things you got when you sat down and that was in the winter time so it was the warm version it was essentially like it was a hollowed out potato so you use this tool to literally hollow out the inside of a potato and then serve a drink in it. And then we had like a straw made from a Spanish shrivel stem and you would serve these. And we, this table of eight, who was this Danish food critic, just showed up. We didn't know they were coming. And, and it was a guy who like, you know, some of the Danish food critics for whatever it was, would really like be aggressive towards Noma because Noma would use, you know, like they were getting so much international press that, hey, if I'm a Danish food critic, I'm going to go in here and like give them, give it to them. So this guy showed up and like, you could tell right away, Renee was like, great, this guy. So they show up and we get these eight coconuts together. And it's like this fury, like everybody's like, oh, you know, this is like, this is a tough table. They go down and then James, who's the general manager, comes around the back of the kitchen. So Renee, <laughs> Renee didn't see him and he goes, he goes, four of these coconuts are empty at the table. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. It's like, who got them? And like, surely enough, the food critic got one of them that was just empty. It was just one of these drinks, just empty. And I know that might not sound like a huge deal, but it was like, this is how we're starting the meal for this guy who seemingly already has it out for Noma. And I just remember waiting for that review to come out. And I knew that it happened. And I never said, I never told Renee it happened because I knew he just like, you just be, you would be so disappointed in us. And I knew at that point it didn't matter. And I just, cause I knew the review would come out and then you'd know. And I just remember this day, it was a funny thing of events. We we're standing at the front of the kitchen and we were supposed to have a private party that night with Bruce Springsteen eating. And they usually would come through the front of the kitchen and then like his band came through and like he wasn't there. So we were like, <laughs> we're like, oh, it was disappointment. <laughs> but then someone else was like, the review final, this review just came out. And I was like, oh God. <laughs> And I remember like they were reading it and he didn't say anything to me. And I thought it was so weird. But then I read the whole review and he just, he said everything was bad. He didn't so, focus on the empty. He, he mentioned that straight away, but because everything was bad, it kind of detracted. Yeah, right. They're like muffled. <laughs> I was up. like, oh God. Holy crap. That's crazy. Yeah. Okay. So how you were there for 
like four, four years. years. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times, but people would say you're on top of the world at that point. Like as Oprah would say, like, was there with your aha moment that school food comes into your life? Fully switching gears here. You're head chef at one of the best restaurants in the world mm-hmm. and then shift. Yeah. So I think it just came to the point where, you know, a, a position like that and a restaurant like that at some point takes its toll on you and it was time to move on. It wasn't like this moment was like, oh, I hate, you know, I don't like being here. It wasn't that at all. It was like, I'm just, it's just time to go on. And we talked about it, Renee. Like, Renee's like, I think this is a job you have for like three and a half years, being the head chef of Nova. Like, this is just a job that really takes a toll on you. And it was just time to move on. So I started thinking about like what I wanted to do because I had no, I had no desire to open a restaurant. Like, that's not what I wanted to do. I had the confidence at that point to really think about it and say like, what do I want to do? I didn't, I didn't feel obligated to do anything. Like I really didn't feel the pressure. I was like, I can do whatever I want. And I really thought about like why I got into this, why I got into cooking in the first place. And like I said, it had nothing to do with fine dining and nothing to do with this, this stuff. It was really about like this whole like hospitality thing, like feeding people. So that's kind of where the idea started. I was like, I want to, I want to cook for a lot of people and I want to cook for a lot of people every day which is something that you don't get to do in restaurants. And then once you make that decision, that really starts to dictate like, what are you cooking? Because um, when you're cooking for people all the time, you really have to take strong consideration of a budget, which is when you're cooking in a fine dining restaurant, you don't really, you know, you can charge a lot of money and people do it. Um, and you have to really take into consideration the nutritional value of that food. Because again, if you're cooking for them all the time, it's just like if you're cooking for your family, you have to pay attention to a budget and you have to pay attention to how it's going to affect them long term because you're cooking for them all the time. When you, so when you left there, you, you knew you were going to do school food work? Before I left, yeah. Before you left. Yeah. What did Renee say? So I had spent a lot of time in Noma seeing people say they were going to leave and him persuade people to stay. I mean, there's loads of people uh, in Copenhagen who literally live in Copenhagen opening other places because he wants them to stay and he gets them to stay. So interesting. He didn't try to do that with me. When I told him what I wanted to do, he was like blown away. That's crazy. He was all for it. He was like, whoa. In fact, like I remember like pretty short after I told him, clearly he had done research about like he knew, like he was like looking into it. In fact, he was our first investor in our company. No shit. Yeah. So I don't know if you see this coming, but I asked him about this Uh day and he said that he would love to share some stuff about Dan. Oh, wow. So I want to read that to you. Yeah, that'd be great. He was more than happy to share some sentiments. And this is what he said. (laughs) He said, Dan Giusti is a really special person. Not only did he reshape our organization, he professionalized it and also became a friend. He's obsessed with detail so much that I would often tell him, why don't you relax a little bit? (laughs) He panicked about small and unimportant things. And I remember talking to him about it. And he said, that's just the way I am. He told me when he was a kid, he used to watch the Weather Channel for hours <laughs> to be in control of what was coming. <laughs> that's the sort of mind he has. That's true. That's very, that's, that's being a nutshell. But he went on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he did. <laughs> Said he's also equipped with one of the smallest egos that I know of, but all that went into his stubbornness. That can be both a big advantage, but also an Achilles heel. Sometimes Dan's stubbornness will simply make him waste his energy on trivial things out of sheer spite. But at the same time, that stubbornness is what gives him this incredible drive and belief. Who would have done what he is doing right now and not quite even 10% into it? Nice. I thought that was pretty amazing. That's cool. No, that's cool. I mean, no, it's true. And and it took a while, but 
we did, you know, we did become friends and I would consider him a friend now. And it's funny because, you know, we don't keep in contact as much as we should. He's obviously extremely busy. I've become busy. But yeah, I mean, it was in a place like that. You go through a lot. We went through a lot there. There's a lot of pressure. And, you know, to get to know a guy like him who when I first started working with him, you know, he was like this like mythical person who like till this day, people are like, wow, you know. And to get to know him and become comfortable with him and, and see that he is like anyone else, but he is just, he's a genius. Like he just, he, he sees things that a lot of people just don't see. And I was always, and I and I have always been that person. I was never that. It was like the opposite of that. <laughs> like I'm just a very practical like doer yeah, and organized. And I do obsess about things and like I do worry about things. And it's like, that's why it was a very good relationship because... I, and that's why I think I thrive there is because I recognized there were people like him. There were some of these other folks working in the test kitchen, but like I was never that, like, that's just not what I am. Those people are so interesting. Like the Renee's of the world, because you don't come across them. You don't come across so many of them throughout your life. Like I have a few of those people in my life and talking to them is just so fascinating because you never really know where they're going to come at something, but where they come at it, you're like, I did not see that coming. Yeah at all and that's genius yeah i mean there were moments there where i was just like okay you know like people would always ask like how involved he was in this and that and the other thing and like the genius of renee is and i don't think you could really see it unless you work there is that like in my time there he had a variety of people working in the test kitchen and he allowed them like first of all the people who work there he put them there so that takes a certain understanding of how it's going to work and then beyond that just cultivating this culture where like they could essentially do whatever they wanted. But it all, and, and if you really pay attention to Noma, you can see the style of food changing per who was there, but it still all worked in this framework. And, you know, he always had his touch on, like, that's a very hard, that's a very challenging thing to do, particularly when you're someone like him, who's such a genius when it comes to food to allow essentially other people to come up with things, but somehow work with like, let them do it, but work with them on it. That's a very difficult thing. And I'd seen many times where like people would work on a dish, super smart, super intelligent, and the dish would be great. And then he'd literally like move something or like put one thing on it and become like 50% better. And that was all he did with that dish. But that's all it took. So when I would see stuff like that, it was like, whoa, I would, and I knew I was like, I would never I I wouldn't think of that ever in a million years. That's crazy. You know, the perfectionist thing, I, Get, I, I feel like I'm a perfectionist with certain things in my life. And there's things that I obsess about that people are like, why do you care about that? Don't care as much. <laughs> I was like, if I don't fucking care about it, right. then I shouldn't be doing it. Right. You know, like, well, that's right. And I think for me, and it's true, like it did get to the point where out of all the people in the world, Renee, who like a lot of people who've worked with Renee would say that, you know, he's crazy about like everything has to be a certain way. And, but I was like absolutely obsessed with everything. I mean, I remember like him laughing at me, like he'd come into the kitchen and it was this thing that like when I would be running the kitchen initially and he came in, the mood changed. People were like, Oh God, you know, Renee's here. Then it came to the point where sometimes he'd come into the kitchen and the way I was running it and the way I was, he'd come in and like laugh at me and just walk and just leave. Cause he was like, man, he's like, he's nuts in here. Like just, I, I became so obsessed with everything yeah. being a certain way, being right that, you know, he trusted me in that sense. Yeah. Brigade. Yes. 
We're looping this into our social impact, giving back portion of the podcast, which is a huge part of why I do this. Each guest usually gives back in a different way. Yours is is very unique, and we could have started about this, and this whole conversation could be about this, but let's let's take everyone through it. So we're on an <laughs> elevator going to the 25th floor. Okay. Give us a, a synopsis of Brigade. Yeah, I think... I will say that like Brigade as a company and as a business model is continuously evolving. But in a nutshell, really what we're doing, similar to my own kind of uh, experience, is we're trying to get professional chefs who would otherwise choose to work in restaurants or hotels that work at a high level to really consider working in public schools to rethink what's possible within school food. Um, As most people don't understand, working in school food, there are a variety of constraints and chefs are obviously very appropriate to tackle those constraints. Um, so that's really what our focus has been in, in how the chefs work with school districts and how we feel is most impactful. That's continuously evolving. Explain the name Brigade. Sure. So w- when it came to, t- to figure out a name, and I put a lot of thought into this, first of all, I, to this day, I think of Brigade as the, the ultimate place where I want to be as a business, as a, a group of chefs. And it's a group of chefs, so brigade, spelled traditionally, ending in A-D-E, it does mean a lot of things, refers to a lot of things, but it is like the one word that references what is this like um, classical system, organizational system within a French kitchen, a kitchen brigade. And then obviously the AID part of it at the end is this idea of a group of chefs using their kind of backgrounds and experiences to to help out in some way, to really apply it to a different space. So. That essentially was why I thought that name was fitting. Digressing for a second. Has CIA invited you back to speak yet? You know, I haven't I haven't spoken at CIA. Re- like, I've done a few things. I'm on their advisory board for curriculum. So I've talked a few times to smaller groups of students about, you know, really thinking about different career trajectories. I will say that it, it's tough. And I think CIA is probably doing and has to do what is kind of what, the market is asking for. And like still a lot of young people, what they want to do is they want to work in a restaurant, you know, I think. Or be on Food Network. Or be on Food Network. (laughs) It's it's true. And and I can understand that. I think, you know, it's easy. I see it with my own team. It's easy for me to say, post on Instagram, this whole thing about a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and be confident about that because no one's ever going to question me because I was the head chef in Oma. No one's ever going to say, well, does this guy even know what he's talking about? Or does he even know how to cook? If you've never been able to accomplish something like, if you've never been, I don't want to say accomplished, but fortunate enough to be in that position. Like I look at my team, who's amazing. The chefs have hired are awesome. But I think they probably have days where they're thinking like, does someone respect me? Because like I never got to do this. And if someone looks at me now as a chef of a school, does someone look at me? Like I even had a, we have a kid who graduated from Johnson and Wales who was trying to figure out what he was going to do for his internship. And he was supposed to go work in a fine dining restaurant and chose to work for us. And his parents were disappointed in him because his parents thought it like even now, like my mom will introduce me to people. And I think she's getting it now, but she'll be like, oh, my son's a chef. And they'll be like, oh, where do you work? And I'm like, oh, well, I have a company that puts chefs in schools. And my mom's like, yeah, but you were the chef at Noma too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. because people don't react. You say you're a chef in a school. People are like, oh, right. Like, okay. Yeah. Right. You know, so it's a it's a hard thing right now to get young people to really consider this as a real career. I think it's 
incredibly important and huge. You could be this person to, I hate to say this, but make it cool. Well, you know what I mean? It has to be cool. And the other thing that we have a struggle with is we're not look like, and I hate to say this, like we're not looking for like bones. Like this is a really hard job and you need to be smart. You need to be organized. You like one thing. It's not like, Oh, I'll just go do this. No. And like, I'm super proud of our team. Like the chefs who work for us, I demand a lot out of them from a, a professionalism level that I don't think is, is really asked for and expected, even at the highest levels in restaurants. I was going to say, they're probably learning more from you working in the school food arena than they would be. I, 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 I honestly, I have this thing where like, if people come and work for us, maybe some come and work for us and it's a lifetime, a lifetime long thing. Maybe other people come work for us and they work for us for two years and go back and work in the restaurant industry. Like, I want this to be something that in five years from now, people put on their resume and the chef's like, okay, like, let's talk to them because, there's no question like what they have to go through to work with us holds them to a, a much higher standard in terms of being a person, professionalism and beyond. Like it's just a different thing. Working in a school, being a role model for kids, following very strict nutritional guidelines that are very technical and can be complicated to understand, developing recipes per those. I mean, it just the list goes on and on and what we demand out of those people, it's just different. It's just a different thing. How long did you spend educating yourself on those nuances of school food? Yeah, I I think going back to like what I think my strengths are, like as much as from day one till now, always brushing up on things, like there are people on our team, like there's a gentleman on our team, Ryan, who's one of our chefs who like, he knew the guidelines, the nutritional guidelines better than anyone on our team does now before he even started working with us because he studied them so much because he wanted this job. And like his mind works that way. So I think, you there's so many things that school food approach, so many topics that school food approaches. I mean, you're talking about it's the nutritional guidelines, so nutrition. It's a lot of politics in a, in a variety of ways, like pol- true politics, like policy, but also politics the way certain districts run and, and who is going to make decisions. There's so much that like I didn't spend. I mean, I probably spent in conjunction with the first two chefs that we hired essentially six to eight months, we, we had to develop menus. I mean, basically I came back to the United States in January. We signed on New London as our first school district in March. And then we put chefs in two schools and started serving school meals in September of the following year. So basically from, you know, six months figuring out like we need to develop menus. And, oh, it didn't just happen overnight. <laughs> and, it, and it's still, and I would say now, like we're so much better at coming up with meals that kids like because you're essentially learning how to cook in a different way. Certain ingredients, you know, when you're working within such a small budget, like you have to think differently about food. I feel like you're way more solution oriented. I mean, there's a lot of freaking red tape when it comes to schools, districts, cities, whatever, whatever, whichever way you want to look at it. But I I feel like you not don't take no for an answer, but more solution oriented in dealing with that red tape. Yeah. I also, I'm one of these firm believers too. Like, I don't like to, I'm, I don't like to, that, that's rooted in the idea that I don't like to say that something is wrong unless I have an idea of how I could fix it. So like, obviously, if I'm going to start a business that's rooted in changing school food, then I better have something. Like, it can't just be, don't get me wrong, have we figured it, the whole thing out? No, but we have proven, we have shown, we have examples that, you can cook from scratch in a school, get kids to eat the food and do it and make it financially viable. So everything we look at, you know, the fact that matters, I tell my chefs all the time and really our team in general that 
the difference between what we do and say working in a restaurant is essentially all those hurdles. Like you can't ever, you can't ever get caught up in like, oh, like sometimes I'll hear, oh, this is this way. And this person, look, that's literally what we do. Like that's our job. Like that's the work we do is, is finding solutions to those hurdles. So like, I don't care. Like, honestly, like I could care less about this. I could have told you this was going to happen two years ago. Like since day one, we knew about all these hurdles. So it doesn't matter anymore. Let's, what is the solution? How are we getting around it? That's, that's the most important thing. Not to make you repeat something that you've probably repeated a hundred times, but can you just lay out the like dollar twenty five? Yeah. All yeah. That? So, so, so very simply, if you are in the United States and you run a school, you and you want money from the government to subsidize your school food program, you can participate, which is what is referred to as the National School Lunch Program, which is run by the USDA. Uh, most schools participate in it, most public schools at least. And essentially what they say is if you create a meal, whether it's breakfast, lunch, or supper, that fits very strict nutritional guidelines that they set, you get a certain amount of money back from the government. So the way that works is this year for lunch specifically, we got $3.39 back from the government. The misconception about that $3.39 is that that money is for just food. But that money is for everything needed to produce that meal. So that's food, that's labor, that's maintenance. In fact, most school districts, most food service programs within this country are entirely self-sufficient on that reimbursement rate to the extent that even the, the general budget of the school district will charge the food service program with that money for utilities that they use within their schools. So they will charge them for gas or electric or lights. So that money in most cases, now there are primarily the bigger school districts sometimes are subsidized by their general budget, but that $3.39 is everything. So when it's all said and done, you have about $1.25 for lunch. And the way the National School Lunch Program works from a nutritional guideline perspective, there are a lot of very specific guidelines, but from a very basic perspective, you have to offer the kids uh, a protein, a whole grain, a fruit, a vegetable, and a milk. And they have to take three of those things for it to be a compliant meal. Milk costs 25 cents, roughly in most places. So if a kid goes through the line and they take a milk, you're down to a dollar now to produce that meal, produce that lunch. So a dollar. That's So back to the challenge from a food person, there's a, a million challenges when you talk about school food, but from a food, strictly food perspective, you have $1 for lunch, $1 for lunch, following what are very, in my opinion, very complicated and strict guidelines, which that's a whole another argument. I am a firm believer that there should be nutritional guidelines, but I will say, having seen it firsthand, putting a whole professional chefs in schools, it's very difficult to come up with these meals that meet these strict nutritional guidelines. And then the final step is actually making meals that kids want to eat. It's extremely difficult. When I've heard you talk about this 85 page document (laughs) that exists, yeah. Around school meals. Maybe a loaded question, but what would you change about that document? Yeah, you know, it's 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 a thing I've thought about so many times because it's it's such a it's right now particularly it's such a politically charged thing. Obviously with the elections coming up as well, even though they'll never mention this in a debate. But you know, these just to put it into context, you know, you've had these these guidelines that were put into place in two thousand ten. And parts of those guidelines were meant to get continuously stricter year over year. And this past year, uh, the current administration halted some of this and 
many people who are very vocal about making school food better were up in arms about this. Look, you can argue that the reason they did that was maybe out of, with the wrong intentions, but one of this one of these items was making the amount of sodium that you can have in a meal less. It was supposed to get stricter. Now, the current level of sodium that you can have in a meal is to a point where, and when we talk about sodium, it's referred to as sodium because unfortunately there's a lot of processed foods. But when we talk about sodium, we're really just talking about using salt to season food. The, the, the standard that it's at at the moment, it's difficult, and we can do it depending on the combination of foods we use, but it's difficult to make food taste the way you or I as, as adults would enjoy eating it. And it was going to get even stricter. Now, a lot of the kids that we're feeding are literally eating like things that are so loaded in sodium that food doesn't even register on their palate. So if anyone out there is spending time in a cafeteria and they see how much food goes in the garbage uneaten, they would know that putting even less salt in the food would make it even that much harder to make this food taste good for kids. So just as like as a sidebar there, that's the kind of thing that... mm, I'm a little in question about now what I would change. What I would say is uh, for me, the idea of nutritional guidelines in schools should be setting an example for kids that they can follow in their personal lives, whether it be during school or beyond their days in school. The current nutritional guidelines are so complicated. You would never follow that. You couldn't. I mean, you're talking about less than 10% saturated fat. You're talking about 51% whole grain flour or more. Like these are things you just won't follow in your everyday life. So for me, a lot of other health organizations out there have produced nutritional guidelines that are much more generic, much more broad. So not only is it easier, it would be easier for us to cook to those guidelines, but it would also be much easier for these kids to actually understand and follow these guidelines beyond their days in school, which I think is kind of extremely important, kind of the point of it. So really just broadening them and making them, to me right now, they're rooted in science. They're very scientific, which I understand Nutrition is rooted in science, but we need to, that needs to be digestible for every, like I'm a chef and I've been working in food my whole life and it's complicated. Like like people should just be able to look at these things and it should make sense. Yeah. Okay. So we spoke about how at Noma you had full view into the, every table from the kitchen. So, you know, if, if there's a plate coming back with a bite on it, you're probably asking the cook or server or whoever dropped it. Why, why didn't they eat that or what's wrong with that? hundred percent. What did you do if that happened? Well, it's funny because in a place like Noma, the pressure was there where it's like, it happened all the time. Like, first of all, we were serving like 25 courses. So each course was very small. So like (laughs) shit would happen where like, it'd be like the fourth dish of of the meal and dishes would come back half eaten. And I'd be like, what happened? And the waiter's like, no, they loved it. I'm like, okay. Like, it's like three spoonfuls. If they loved it, they would have finished the food. So if if we really felt like, and this is where you were always gauging the table. So as a trying to understand, you know, what, what we would usually do in a place like that, you had a set menu, but you were always prepared to do like another 15 dishes. And that was like, whether it was dietary restrictions, you always had like, you know, a vegan or vegetarian alternative, gluten-free alternative, but also just general alternatives. Meaning like if a place like Noma, like if you, if you had already eaten there and you were coming again and the menu was similar, like that's kind of shit that's shit. So it would be like, let's give them a whole different menu. So there'd be people who'd have just different menus because they'd already eaten there and they'd already had some of these dishes. So if a table 
if, if even if even if someone came back, that might be an opportunity for a chef to go to the table. Like if 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 the waiter, because the waiters were great there, they might just be kind of afraid to like say something. And it's like, so if no one ate the food, it might be time to like get down there and be like, just try to feel the table out. Are they happy with the food? Sometimes it was easy. Sometimes people would just say, I didn't like this. And then you could give them a different dish. You know, and sometimes we'd see that there are people, be people eating there that they shouldn't be eating there. Like it was a primarily vegetable focused menu and you see people really into meat. So like you might need to start to bring in other dishes that you knew would like be good for them. Like it would make them happy. I mean, you do whatever you could really. All right. Now in a school, when a tray comes back with food on it, what do you do? Yeah. So it's unfortunate. First of all, because of the nature of the way we're serving kids, you obviously when, when you're at Noma and you're 45 chefs serving 45 people at a time, you can, you can do whatever you need to do in real time. You're kind of, you're kind of out of luck in a school. So it's happened where we've served 650, 700 kids within an hour, you know, three lunch waves with an hour, an hour and a half lunch waves, 20 minutes each. We're like unanimously kids hated the food and it's just shit. Like there's just nothing you can do. Like there's no time to make up for that. Now in individual cases where it's a little slower, where maybe the majority of kids like the food, but like a kid really didn't like the food, we can work. Like sometimes we'll get kids who like, they didn't want to try something new and we'll tell them like, just try it. If you don't like it, we'll give you something else. And we can do that. Um, unfortunately this is where, you know, there's a lot of folks out there who they're thinking on feeding kids is like, we're the adults. We're the professionals. We know what's best for them to eat. Therefore, we should feed them and they should eat it. Now, in theory, that's great. Like if you're in a household where you have a couple of kids and you're a parent or guardian and you can be there one-on-one with your kids or one-on-three or one-on-five, one-on-two, whatever. But when you're serving 300 kids in 10 minutes and there's two people who are temporary employees who really don't even know what's being served because it's not their job to know, you don't have that circumstance. If you serve food that kids don't like or don't want to look at, they're not going to eat it. And that's the end of it. So I think what we're always trying to do, you you don't have that. So it happens like where a lot of kids will just be like, we don't like this. And and, and that's the end of it. So do you not serve it again or do you? Well, that's the thing. Then you need to evaluate. Like there's people out there say scientifically, people tell me this all the time. 12 times before look, If you, first of all, as a chef, if you serve someone something once and they don't like it, you're not going to serve it again. But if you serve 600, 700, 800 kids, particularly like high school kids who are literally tell you to your face, like, fuck you, that they don't like the food, you're not going to serve it 12 times. Right, <laughs> you're, right. just, you're just not going to do that. Like, so you need to evaluate. So sometimes it means that you're adjusting it. So maybe there's a specific reason they didn't like it and it's just a matter of tweaking something. Or maybe it's just like, this isn't going to work. Like, for example, like fish. So in New London, it's right on the coast. We had a lot of kids like, why don't we ever get fish? We're like, we'll get fish. We, we struck up this relationship with a company out of Boston. We were getting fresh fish to serve. That was like literally coming out of the ocean on like Monday and we were serving on Wednesday. Coming on Tuesday, serving on Wednesday. But like super polarizing. 80% of the kids are like, this, this smell of fresh fish is like, no. Like they want fish sticks. Like that's all they want is fish sticks. And it was just like, and, and it, the, the, the budgets are so tight that you cannot afford, not only should you not do it, you can't, because again, it's a business. And this is where things, this is where great initiatives can fail as well. If you're someone who's advocating for a great initiative, for example, I, want, I think we should serve vegan food on this day. Okay, great. So the National School Lunch Program, if you're serving vegan, it's either beans or tofu as your main entree. That, and 
if you're going to use a vegan cheese. Even if you want to do vegetarian, it would be cheese, beans, or tofu. So if you want to do this initiative, you're going to say, let's do this initiative. And then all of a sudden, only 10% of the kids are eating. So a few things happen. Only 10% of the kids are eating, which is a big problem, particularly if 80% of the kids are usually eating. So now all of a sudden you have all these kids who just didn't eat that day, and that's a problem in itself. But beyond that, now all of a sudden all these kids didn't eat, therefore you didn't get the reimbursement. Therefore, at some point, you can't afford to do this anymore. So this great initiative you had, if there was no plan for it of how this was going to work, all of a sudden goes back to square one. And the skeptical people, which there are tons of skeptical people in the school food world who's like, this is never going to work, or like, it didn't work. And you see this all over the country where there's a lot of complacency in school food. It's your run-of-the-mill school food. People set in their ways. They don't want to make changes. They don't want to do anything. And on the very other end of the spectrum, super radical people are like, no, we need to do this. We need to do this. None of the kids eat the food. But usually those very vocal people are very well-connected. So those, these things get implemented, but then they fail. And then things go right back to where they were. Like, this is a long-term thing. You need to be very practical, very realistic, very pragmatic. And it's going to take time, and you need to build and build and build and build. It's not, you're not going to change kids' tastes overnight. And I think there's a lot of this thinking out there that's just going to happen overnight. And everything bends, bends, and then it breaks. And you just see it. You see it all across the country, you know? Yeah. So when you walk around the cafeteria, what makes you proud? I would say when, obviously, when kids are eating their food, you can tell when kids are eating their food in a way, or not even kids, you can tell when people are eating their food in a way that they're enjoying it. It's very clear. They're eating it at pace. They're, you know. One thing, probably the thing that makes me most happy and proud are when I see the chefs that we've hired in the cafeteria and the kids really want to talk to them really want to ask them questions and say things to them because like at the end of the day, like, and this is why this is tricky. Like you could serve, like, what does this even mean? Like you can serve the best food that was ever served in a school tomorrow. And like, probably no one would eat it. Like that's not success. Like it's going to take time to get kids to enjoy different food, but like you'll, you're never going to get to a place with the kids with the food, unless the relationship to the people involved in making that food is strong. So when I see those things happening, for example, the first year we did this, the proudest moment I had was the first two schools we started in New London was a middle school and a high school. Tough, tough crowd. Middle school is like these kids, they think they're adults, they're not adults. High school, like they're over it, they're too cool. Simultaneously, so the first two chefs that we hired, their birthdays were in the same week in April. And the staff of those kitchens, which, you know, these people aren't well off. They managed to like, they found out it was their birthday on their own, got them gifts, baked them things, got them cards, sang happy birthday. And all three lunch waves, both in the high school and the middle school, sang happy birthday to the chefs. For me, this was the best thing. Like we literally had kids in the high school during the first year say like, I don't really like this meal, whatever this is you've made. And most people would say, well, that's terrible. And, but then say, but we see how much you guys are doing here. Like you're working hard. You like, we see that. And when you have a high school kid who literally like could give a shit about anything, come up to you and say like, we see you working hard here. Thank you. That means a ton. And yeah, sure. They might not have liked the meal. And that's what everybody wants to focus on. Everyone out there, all they want to focus on is that meal that has to come with time. Like that's not, it's just not going to happen. If you know people, you know, that's just not going to happen. If any, like I don't even have my own kids. 
But like I have nieces and nephews, they growing up in, in households that they're really well taken care of and they are very picky eaters. And sometimes they eat chicken nuggets. It's not the end of the world. You know what I mean? Like it just, sometimes it's going to happen. Okay. So I asked you your most memorable review, good or bad at Noma. What's one from the kids at school? Yeah. So we've done a few things where we will ask kids for feedback, like written feedback, like solicited, like, and that's open up. Like, you know, we've had a few, we have two things. One is like a proper like thing that something was said. Another one was more of an, an experience that will always stick out in my mind. And it, it's something everybody can relate to. But the one was we had them write on napkins and post it on a board. Like what, what do you want to see or what can we do better? And one just said, try harder. That was one. And then one time at the high school, I got to the high school and Ryan, who was the chef there at the time, he was like, I happened to overhear, they were going through their, their student government, like campaigning. Like they were doing like speeches. Like if I'm this, you know, class president and they were literally advocating for better food, even though we had a chef in the school, they're like advocating for like, we want, we're going to bring this back. We're going to bring back chicken patties. We're going to bring back that. And I was like, Oh my God. I was like, shit, this is horrible. Yeah. It's brutal. Like (laughs) to think that like you hear all these, you know, you see these things on movies all the time and like people want better school food. And like, here we have a chef in school and they're advocating for different school food. I was like, Oh no, I mean, but we've seen, I mean, I definitely would say that we've seen our share more share of, negative written feedback. I mean, I've gotten emails. I've gotten emails or people who are students in New London who said like, you ruined everything, blah, blah, blah. This is terrible. It's tough. You know, it's, it really hurts because these kids don't have a choice, you know, like at a restaurant, like if you're an adult and you go to a restaurant, it's not good. Like I could care less. Like you chose to go there. There's so much information out there that you could have done your research. You know exactly what you're getting into. These kids don't have a choice. So if they show up to school and the food's not to their liking, like it just sucks for them. They have to come back every single day. So when you get a review, particularly when you know a lot of these kids don't have a lot of access to good stuff outside of school or just generally that they're leading a life that's difficult, like the least we can do is make them happy with the food. Like it seems like an easy thing we should be able to do. Yeah, totally. All right, let's do a quick speed round and then we'll yes. wrap it up. Um, what'd you have for dinner last night? Panzanella salad, and I ate it at one thirty in the morning. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Garlic. Smell in the kitchen you hate. Burning things. What pisses you off in the kitchen? Uh, when people make lazy movements that create a lot of noise. Hmm. What makes you happy in the kitchen? When it's just quiet and professional sound. When it's just like humming. Yeah. People are moving around and things are happening. If you could sing with one person on stage, who would you sing with? Stevie Wonder. Here's a tip, everybody. Follow Dan on Instagram because <laughs> yeah. he sings on his Instagram stories. It's fantastic. In Italian. Yes. All right. In closing, I fucking hate when people ask me a question like this. So I'm going to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> Ten years from now, where is Brigade? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think for me, you know, I, I'm doing what I'm doing because this seems like the way I can make impact the way I want to make impact because I'm a chef. For all I know, you know, maybe in an ideal world, there's no more need for Brigade in 10 years. You know, that chefs are just doing this work and it's a common thing. The standard is much higher. There's no need for a business like Brigade anymore. Hopefully there's a need for Brigade 
in the coming few years, <laughs> and I think there is, but in 10 years, ideal case scenario is that we've done our job and chefs are literally just like, this is just a common thing. I come out of culinary school and I become a chef in a hospital, or I become a chef in a school and, and that's what's happening. You know, and we've passed on, we've created a lot of these chefs, we've trained a lot of these chefs, we've created a lot of information out there and resources for these chefs to use and there'll be a better use of our time at that point. Amazing. Is there a thing with someone saying thank you to you? <laughs> no, I said this. I had said it before that that you know a lot of people, particularly chefs, are like, "Thanks for doing this." And yeah. It's like because it's like some charity. Like, no, I this is like the best job I've ever had. Like, I really like it. Obviously, when people say thank you, it's nice. But I would joke that people are like, "Man, thanks for." It's like thanks for giving up everything to do this. I'm like, no, like this no, is what I want to do. Yeah, right. oh, so I can say thank you for doing this podcast. Yes, okay, right. great. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for doing this of podcast. Course. I don't think it's fully like like sinking with me the your talent, like where it's where you use it and how far you've come with it and where you're where you've pivoted like in your professional life to put that towards it. It is it's incredible. Well thank you. I love watching what you do and full disclosure. A lot of my work I do with Rachel Ray and her cooking and kids work, we we do some stuff with Dan and Brigade. So I hope we can do more because, like I said earlier, if someone could make like cooking in a school cool, you know, (laughs) I I think it's you and and with your with your background. So um, I guess I'll leave you with keep caring and feeding about our nation's children. I will. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Quote. You're never going to get to a place with the kids, with the food, unless the relationship to the people involved in making that food is strong. Thanks again to Dan Justy. Find more on him at chefsbrigade.com. That's B-R-I-G-A-I-D. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at on Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on Twitter at BT Plate Podcast and Facebook. And so sorry to interrupt. You've heard me mention Cook Tracks brought to you by the folks behind this podcast, but we're getting a lot of love from people on social media that are actually cooking these recipes. And that's the point. As I mentioned, Cook Tracks is a project we've been working on for well over a year. It's a brand new way to cook, truly. It's no pause and play on a video. It's a chef in their kitchen, in your ear, walking you through a recipe step by step. Follow at Cook Tracks on Instagram. No recipe reading needed. No pausing, as I said. There's six episodes right now. We have Rachel Ray, Gail Simmons, Rocco Despirito, Stephanie Izard, Jimmy Papadopoulos. For more information and updates, check out Cook tracks.com or on whatever platform you're listening to this on okay thanks for listening this episode was produced by myself along with ian cohen joe yeaton and sean petrosian thank you to tom osborne our music has been composed by goldford as always special shout out to my wife katie please rate review and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice Join us next week for Just the Plate when Dan talks us through his version of aglio, olio e pepperoncino. This is a good one, folks. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.